I invite you to turn in um, your Bibles with me, if you have them, to um, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9. It is my pleasure to be um, with you again, and my wife is with me, and our daughter and son-in-law and children, and so it's um, good that we can all be with you uh, this Lord's Day morning and pray that the Holy Spirit would just minister to you personally and, uh, and corporately. I'm going to be reading from uh, the 30th verse through the 37th verse of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 9. And before we read his word again, let's, let us ask him to uh, bless the reading of this word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us the revelation of the Scriptures, the revelation of your mind and of your plan for the ages, that it might all be um, for our good and the glory of your holy name. We thank you that your Spirit accompanies that word and we pray that you would enable us to learn it inwardly and that it would be written on the walls of our hearts and minds that we might reflect on it and practice it by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his inerrant, infallible, inspired word. At least three times Jesus had to deal with this same question about greatness. They lived at a time when there was 
a greater distinction between people and they were classified as poor or as noble. Or Now here they are, they've been spending some amount of time in the presence of the Christ, the one they were gradually beginning to understand was the one that God had promised since He first spoke about the Messiah to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So they knew that Jesus is the Son of God. And like us, being men of the same emotions and passions as we are, they forgot that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one to whom they're posing the question. Now, you and I would have no doubt only done it once. But the disciples did it at least three times, and I, I think it might even be more than that. They did it at the Last Supper. Can you imagine? Arguing about who among them is the greatest. I mean, they knew they were following God, the Son, and they knew because Jesus had told them, you would have authority, you twelve, in the kingdom of heaven. So they were no doubt giddy about that. I would be. And so they were wondering, well, who is going to be the greatest? Do you remember the story when John and James, the two brothers, whose father... Zebedee was a fisherman. Well, the whole family came to Jesus once to ask him to give them a greater position than the other disciples. The mother had made the request. Can one sit on one side of you in the, on your throne and can the other sit on the other side? And Jesus said, you don't really know what you're asking. Are you able to receive the baptism that I'm going to receive? He was referring to the suffering that always comes before glory. And they said, we're able. No sweat. No problem. If Jesus was like one of us, he would say, whatever, but... He didn't. His, his response is that every single instant in the, in the Gospels was so unlike me and so unlike all of us. We would, we would respond differently. But what Jesus says here can change the way we live by His Spirit and enable us to relate to the least people that we would want to even be seen with. And Jesus, of course, in all of these instances, uses a child. And there's a particular reason for that. But understanding relationships is crucial in this day of virtual friendships and social networking. When statistics reveal that 
many people, if not most people, have maybe have one, maybe two, but one person with whom the, in person they can really relate on an intimate level in conversation. It's also a day when in many families the father has no relationship with his children. Josh McDowell speaks about this often and for many years. Is it wrong to want to be great? After all, God created us for dominion over the creation. But Adam and Eve rejected this unequal partnership when they decided that they would reject God's rule and they would engage in autonomy or self-rule. The outcome, as you know, is that they lost their ability to be great. In Genesis chapter 11, the men and women of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves without God. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I will make your name great. I will make you a great nation so that you will be a great blessing to all the nations. And you can read in that word, blessing to serve. Because that's exactly what it means. So our idea of greatness is really the opposite of the Bible's. We're, we, we are faced with greatness constantly. We have the great one in the White House now. And, uh, and we've seen the fruit of that, greatness. Many, many children of all ages and teens want to be great in the eyes of the world because they see those who are made great in entertainment uh, and in sports because the lights are flashing and there's all kinds of uh, money thrown at them. They want to be great. But is it right to want to be great? Or is it right to want to be known as great? Well, it's not right according to the Word of God. Is it right to want to be greater than someone else? Well, no, it is not right. You may say, I don't care about being great. I just want enough money to enjoy myself. But is that not the same as wanting to be great? You would agree with me on that if, if I had had time to just go down a whole list of of um, statistics about the poverty that most of the world is suffering and many here in our own country. Does Jesus show us how to be great? Well, he does. And this is, a, this is an amazing part of Scripture. The Lord was instructing his disciples in the 30th verse and going on down about his coming death. He, he does this three times in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, in the 31st verse here, and again in chapter 10, verse 34. He wanted them to prepare for his death so they would not think that it was going to be an accidental death, that he had planned this with the Father before the foundation of the world so that he might be our 
law keeper and our punishment taker and redeem us from the curse of the law. So he was preparing them for his death. He was teaching them. He wasn't looking for a crowd right then. So he told them, if you look in verse 31, he says, the Son of Man, he's using probably one of the greatest titles that he'd like to use for himself from Daniel's vision in chapter 7 about the Son of Man coming to receive the authority of the Ancient of Days to rule his kingdom in this world. And he also used it because it was it referred to Jesus as the last man, the second Adam, the representative of all of his people. So he said the Son of Man is going to be delivered. And that's what it says in, our, in the ESV. It really is already. It's not a future tense is already delivered, is what the term really means. And he will be killed, and the third day he would rise. He will be killed was very distressing news. And they weren't ready to believe that. How can the Son of Man, who is God the Son, die? And so they decided, since they were afraid of what he meant, they wouldn't ask him about it. Just not going to ask him about it. And he wasn't angry about it, but he kept doing it. And then they traveled, in their travels in Galilee, they came to Capernaum, Peter's city. And he may have been in Peter's house, and it may have been Peter's child that was called to him. So he's in the house, and he had been hearing in his mind what they were saying. They were, it was a furtive conversation, it, because they were harboring secret ambitions. So he asked them, what were you talking about? Now, he had already revealed to them that he knew what they were thinking previously. They had seen him just talk about people's thoughts that had not spoken in his hearing. So again, in verse 34, they kept silent because they were arguing about who is the greatest. There's three, three main points I want to give you. The first one that we've come to is that the path of greatness leads down. The path of greatness does not lead up. It's not the ladder that you have to climb to get to success. It's not a high mountain that you've got to climb in order to be in the, at the commanding heights as far as you can in this world. It's, to use the same metaphor, greatness in the eyes of God is being under the last rung of the ladder. 
Jesus says, well, <clears throat> he called the twelve, he sat down, he called the twelve, and he didn't lose it. He never lost it. He just says, come here. And in verse 35, we read, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus is saying two things there. If you want to be great, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, but you just want to beware of wanting to be great in the eyes of the world rather than, or in the eyes of yourself rather than in the eyes of God. So if you want to be great, the first thing you've got to do is put yourself last of all. Notice that. He must be last of everyone else. Now this, is, this teaching runs throughout the entire Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is there because so much of the Old Testament is pointing us to the greatness of the majesty of God, the greatness of His loving kindness, the greatness of His arm, the might and power. I mean, they're coming to the creator of everything and they're saying, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's Jesus. But Jesus didn't show his greatness all the time. To be great, you must put yourself last. To be great... Jesus says you must put yourself in a position so that you can serve everyone. So that you can serve all, including the last person in the world you would want to be seen with. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this is what Paul says. He says, God will render to each one according to his work those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So right there, Paul says, God made us for greatness and he wants, us, he wants you to seek for immortality and glory and honor. And he will give you eternal life if you seek that the right way. And we're going to look at the pattern, but the path is so upside down in our usual way of thinking. What is the cure for wanting glory and fame? And Jesus shows us here it's humility. He wants us to aim for the glory of heaven, not for the glory of earth, because the glory of earth is going to fade rather quickly in light of eternity. So you've got 13 years to live, 30 years to live, 80 years to live, it's a very short time, no matter what time it is that we will be in this world and we want to be piling up honor and glory and immortality in heaven, setting your treasure in heaven, not letting it be in this world. So he says you've got to be last, last of all, not just second to the last. <laughs> Did you ever break in line so you could be first? or want to go to the head of the line. Three of my little children did one time. We went to a mission conference, and I, we were supposed to speak. and, and uh, So we got to the end of the line because we were late, but not our children. I, look, I looked around for them, and there they were at the head of the line getting their food. 
I'm sure we've all done that. So the path to greatness is down. It's not up, it's down. Secondly, the pattern for greatness, look, look at verse 36. He took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Three things in that one verse shows us the Lord's pattern. We've got the Lord's prayer. This is the Lord's pattern for greatness. This is what He made you for. This is what He wants us to be. He took a child. He put him in the middle of some adults. And then He embraced him. He wrapped His arms around them. The reason he took a child is because a child shows perhaps more than a poor person or a crippled person or a person of another race or just you can just add the, all the categories that we have for separating people. A child shows perhaps more why the world considers them the least that need our attention it's always been a matter of low priority of insignificance, demeaning work, because it's work that nobody wants, like the nursery. Isn't that low work? So many Americans have chosen to separate themselves from traditional family life that it wouldn't be too difficult to Imagine a time when a group of adults are standing around, there's a little child there, and they're looking down on him, and one of them may say, weren't we once one of them? And one might respond, we all were once. Maybe the person would say, what, what is it? There are communities in America where there are no children. Huge communities. When we lived in Florida, uh, there was a, and we noticed a, a great proliferation of communities where just the old lived and there were no children. Children couldn't permanently live there. They could visit, but not permanently stay there. Some of those people were in my church, the church that I pastored and they had moved far away from their families and their grandchildren. I felt really sorry for them. Because when the old choose to be separated from the young, they become grumpy and boring. And they seem to age faster than others. You look at, you can look at that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that one of the qualifications for being an elder, one of the qualifications to assess a man's spiritual fitness for serving the church is that he knows how to, he deals with, knows how to deal with children, especially his own, but other children. It says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping the children submissive, for someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
A gap shows in our thinking when we look at the word manage because we often don't associate it with another term, relationships, because management is based on relationships. Josh McDowell's talked about this for many years. You try to have relationships. You try to manage something within your people of any age, within a structure of authority, but there's no relationship. You just turn them into rebels. Jesus said, don't be proud, in a similar verse passage in Mark, in Matthew chapter 18. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Paul says also that in, in our mind, God wants us to be men, not children. He wants us all to grow up in Christ in Ephesians 4.13 so that we will attain to the knowledge of God and the maturity of a full-grown man. But Jesus says, you take a child. He took a child and he put him in the midst of them and, and then he held him. Receiving a child, and you can also put in this passage, this isn't just for focusing attention on children, but what they represent. He could have spoken about the poor, the blind, the crippled. And he does in Matthew chapter 25. Over 24,000 children die every day around the world. There are 2.2 billion children in the world and 1 billion of them are in absolute poverty. In 2008, before they reached their fifth birthday, almost 9 million children died. Usually of five simple diseases that for lack of inexpensive medical treatment, anybody would die. But children have to be a major concern. I think that's one reason, again, why Jesus is pointing them to a child. So, the path to greatness is downward. We must stoop to serve. We have to descend if we're going to receive God's greatest blessings. And then, of course, first, this the second, this pattern of greatness is taking a child. You can't take all the children in the world. Child Evangelism Fellowship in Zimbabwe has some Bible clubs that have 2,000 children coming to them. But you can't take, you just take one child at a time. It may be yours, and there's plenty more to go around who don't have fathers and mothers. They have to be a major concern. The third point here is what I call the goal of greatness. Jesus says in verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the goal of greatness is to receive God, to receive more of him for his glory. The disciples weren't talking about kids. But Jesus turns the 
whole conversation, discussion, away from the value of a child to the value of God. And I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but have I don't know if you've ever been so preoccupied with theology or the glory of God that somebody in somebody's presence, and you're always talking about God's goodness, and somebody might say to you, why can't you just lighten up? Does it always have to be about theology? Well, Jesus is here saying, yes, it has to be about theology. Because theology leads to doxology. I'm on Facebook, and one of my younger friends, he's, he's a grown man, but I've known him since he was in high school. Uh, he did this to me one time. And there are not too many people who would actually say it to me, but he, he came back. He'd asked me a question about, I can't remember what it was, and I just said something about the goodness of God. And uh, he wrote back, um, and he said, can't, do you always have to talk about theology? Is it all, can't you be real? I mean, I'm a real person. Can't you just deal with me on a real level? And, and I mean, he went on for a little paragraph there, and I wrote back and said, well, will you ask me? You were asking me a question, and that was the way I responded, because I'm, I'm thinking about God a lot, because he's, he's everything to me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, again, it could be any type of person other than a child, a poor person. But our, the point Jesus is saying is that whoever welcomes one such child, whoever welcomes the poor, the crippled, the blind, those in prison, those who are sick, those who need clothing, if they visit them, if they receive them, they receive me. And not just me, but my Father who sent me. So he wants us to have more of him. That's the whole idea. That's the whole point of this passage. Look, whoever receives one such child in my name. Well, don't we just do deeds of mercy? Don't we serve children for the sake of the children? Or in the name of a child? or for the future of our country. No, it's not anything but in the name of Christ. That's why we do these things. That's why we should want to do them. Because we want more of God so that we can give them more of God. To be great, you must serve children. can't look down on them, despise them. If they're not the same color as you are, if they're not as wealthy as you are, I mean, you need to take time for them and be with them and pray for them and get down on their level. Wrestle with the boys if you're a guy, a man. There's, there's too many men who are just terrified of kids. I mean, these old people in Florida, again, I, I felt so sad for them. They were actually afraid, terrified of the teenagers in there. So they had these walls around their communities. And maybe there's some around Biloxi. I hope not. So Jesus defines greatness in terms of being 
one of his sheep. He does this in Matthew 25. If you clothe the naked, if you visit those in prison and those who are sick, and if you give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, you've done it to me, he says. These are what the world counts least, but in God's eyes, it's, it's his greatest. So wherever the Spirit is pervading, you're going to have those who will receive the least and minister to them, and you will be great in God's eyes. John Piper, in the, preaching on this same text, um, many years ago, said that the nursery may be more full of God than any other room in the church. In conclusion, I want to just share some particular things that you can start with. And these items have been um, in my mind for a long time, and I know others have thought the same thing, and maybe you're practicing some of those here. Leaders could spend, leaders in the church, the great ones in the church, could begin to spend time with children in the church. Deacons could keep the nursery for an experience. Elders could teach Sunday school. You know, Paul says you must be apt to teach. If you, you have to at least be able to teach a child before you can teach an adult. Parents can keep their kids in worship services so that their children can see that worship is important to their parents or their grandparents and see how they do it and how they respond. Of course, that means you've got to teach them to be quiet and to be still and teach them to learn to, learn, to listen. Those are the first three moral principles every child needs. And adults can talk to kids. I, I was serving a church uh, full of homeschooling families. I loved the people there, and the fellowship was great, but every time there was fellowship before and after the services, the adults were talking to the adults, and the kids were playing by themselves. Teenagers, little kids, nobody talked to them. So start talking to kids. Ask them their names. Talk about spiritual matters. Most adults, when they get together, don't talk about spiritual matters. You can, you can be with some people all day and they won't bring up really important things. Fathers should lead their wives and their children in family devotions. This is the hardest thing for a man to do. I'm absolutely convinced it's the most important responsibility of a husband to lead his wife before the throne of grace and lead his children before God regularly. Now, do I think Christians will do these things readily? No. Some will, maybe, if we remember that Jesus' own disciples had to be reminded over and over again. So Jesus isn't beating us up about it. Bad habits and pride die hard. But because we are a new creation in Christ, some will, by the grace of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is by your grace 
that we have come even this far. And none of us is perfect. We, we have not yet arrived. But Lord, burden our hearts with an, a sense of urgency. Because the young will not stay young forever. And some of those who are sick will die. And many in prison will be hurt so deeply they may never respond. Lord, we want to be great in your eyes. So I pray that we will be last of all and servant of all so that we might have more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.